Welcome to the Four Corners Podcast with Lenny Marcus. Joining me today, as always, is my co-host, Neil Potter. Four hey top- there. Four topics, 15 minutes each. We're just killing time. Kill it with us. Our Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is the number 4C Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on the Riotcast Network, Riotcast.com, and now LaughButton.com. Today's guest, Coronavirus Week 13, I can't take this anymore, is originally from Harvey, Illinois, and is a flat-out Hollywood legend. A stand-up comedian that Daily Variety and I bet a million people has called a total pro. He has appeared on more than 500 times as a stand-up comedian. On TV is more than 500 times as a stand-up comedian. Opened for some guy named Frank Sinatra for about 14 years. He has a new book out entitled Still Standing My Journey from the Streets and Saloons to Stage and Sinatra. Released this week, he has appeared over 60 times on The Tonight Show, which is only 50 times, 59 times more than I did. It's Tom Dreesen. Tom, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, but that, that one time you did, Lenny, it just, just you know, knocked me out of the ballpark with the other 60. <laughs> <laughs> so many people said to me, if you would have done what Lenny did, you know, you wouldn't have to keep coming back to you to get it right. Lenny did it once and got it right. That's it. That's it. That's it. But you did it, of course, with Carson. That's, that was the dream. But I started the year he retired, so that was, that's the difference. Oh, I did about I did about eleven or twelve with Jay too, because you know we started out together. Jay Leno, me. Yeah. I I, I used to uh, I'd be on at the comedy store when I was brand new, when the team I was with split up. I'd go on every night with all these unknown comedians: David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, Elaine Boozler, Gallagher, and the girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. Yeah. So. Oh wow! So crazy. <laughs> Do, when you were on TV, those the, the, do you remember? You of course remember the first one. Do you remember? Do you remember the best one? Do you remember your best one? Well, you know, th- there were some nights that the audience was just hotter than others. I had uh, several that I walked off and said, "Wow, this is really um, the, the, the one." But there's no describing the first one because when you go back to that era. In 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? They didn't say The Tonight Show. They said Johnny Carson. And if you hadn't been on on The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson Show, then in the eyes of America, you weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one. But you weren't one now. That show had 26 million people watch it. Yeah, and I know. one appearance on that show, <clears throat> just one appearance, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the following day. <laughs> I did one appearance on that Tonight Show, and CBS sent me to a development deal the following day. I had been in the unemployment line with a wife and three kids on my rear end, and, and th- that show, I got bumped three times. I kept going back, getting put in makeup, going to my dressing room, going down to the mm-hmm. green room, getting ready to go on, and they ran out of time, come back another week, come back another week. And finally, uh, uh, the fourth time I went there, I was in makeup, and Fred DeCordova, the producer, came into the makeup room, and he said, I got bad news for you. And I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you get a lump in your throat the size of a grapefruit, you know? And I'm a calm entertainer. I've worked on that for years, on being comfortable on stage. I love 
the comfort of being on stage, and I, I worked on that, uh, on how to get that feeling. So, but I'm standing behind that curtain now, knowing 26 million people are going to see me, and not only every agent, managers, people in our industry watch that show, but my mother had everybody back in Harvey, Illinois watching, so if I bomb, I can't even go back home. <laughs> you know, so, now, now you're behind that curtain, and, and, the, and Doc Severinsen's playing, because you're in commercial break, and all of a sudden the music stops, and your heart stops, and you hear Johnny say, we're back now, and I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight, because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. That one line, I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight, yeah. he sets a tone. And I went through that curtain, I felt like I was in an operating room, I couldn't see the audience. You know, you hit your mark, as you know, yep. honey, hit your mark on the floor. And then, I mean, the first laugh and the second laugh and the third laugh and the fourth laugh, I hear Johnny and Ed laughing behind me. And I got like eight applause and, and I, I can't tell you, I was on a roll and, and it just knocked it out of the park. And then the, the last joke I did, I said, You've been a wonderful audience. Uh, this is my first appearance on The Tonight Show, and show business is a tough life. So if you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub, tell them about me, will you please? <laughs> <laughs> and then Johnny called me back for another bow. I went through the curtain, and Johnny called me back to take a second bow. And guys, this is the truth, uh, Lenny Neal. I have never stopped working from that day. My entire life changed beyond description. I was doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, uh -huh. Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I was doing all those shows. Sammy Davis Jr. is taking me on tour. All kinds of other artists that use comedians for opening acts wanted me on tour because I could work clean and, and, and most of them had family shows. But I mean, yeah, it, it was a, um, an incredible moment in my life. That's awesome. Wow. I, want, I want to um, I want to talk about I want to definitely come back to that more. But I want to talk about your life at, when you say you can't even go back to Harvey, Illinois. Did you want to go back to Harvey, Illinois? I mean, I read the first three chapters of this book and it's like, I mean, you grew up dirt poor with where your families. Everybody was still there. Yeah, well, you know, they, they scattered around there. But you know what? You, you when you you're, if I. And what I'm going to say to you right now, you're going to say, well, this sounds like something, this humble nonsense, but it's true. I had, if I close my eyes, whether, no matter who I was in my career, on the Tonight Show, uh, flying in Frank Sinatra's jet, appearing at Caesar's Palace, appearing in big arenas with Frank, all the, you know, on, on Ellis Island where my ancestors came from performing there. If I close my eyes, I see a little boy with a shoeshine box walk, trudging through the snow going from bar to bar trying to make money to feed his brothers and sisters that's who i am and that's who i'll always be I, 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 that's the way i perceive life from that little boy's viewpoint so yeah you, you always want to go back uh but who was it thomas wolf said you can never go back and he he's right because it's never going to be the same right you know well, but, but i did go back you know i mean they named the street after me there uh -huh. the street that i sold newspapers on a corner um those kind of things. So, but it's really, really, it's in a, in a tough shape now. It's number one in the United States for crime for a community okay. of its size. You know, when you were when you were there, did you dream of getting out, or did you think that your life was going to be in Harvey for a long time? I know the you you went back after the Navy. We'll talk about that in a second. And then you you were working there, and then one day you're like, okay, I gotta I gotta clean up and get out and go and and. 
Yeah, when I came out of service, I was wandering aimlessly. I, I, I never thought about Harvey. I thought Harvey would be my whole life. I thought Harvey was the whole world. I mean, even though I'd been in the service for four years and toured around. But I thought this was going to be my world. I never thought I'd be in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind, you know. And it all happened by pure... I think it happened by prayer, to be honest with you. I was I was wandering aimlessly. I ended up with a wife, three kids, after I came out of the service. And I'm, I'm taking one job after another. And I was never satisfied with any of those jobs, you know, working on loading docks, loading trucks. And I became, I dropped my Teamster card, and I became a foreman, and I now was management. Um, every job I did, I did well, but I was frustrated because something inside was gnawing at me and I'd go out drinking with my buddies hanging out in the bar so two three in the morning you know and I was always a part-time bartender too drinking but I'd, I'd say I don't belong here but I don't know where I belong mm. so I started praying I honestly started praying saying God this can't be what you want me to do please show me the way and and somehow it happened. I, I was uh, in the civic group called the JCs, Junior Chamber of Commerce, and I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the, uh, the ills of drug abuse with humor. Well, how uh, did you know that? How did you know how to do that? Were, like, were you in a program at that point? No. I, I just did a lot of research. The, the JCs worked on civic projects on how, how to better the community, working on the problems of the community, by and, and then bettering it. And that way they taught you how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, uh, taught you how to conduct meetings, Robert's Rules of Order, how to get in front of an audience and speak. You know, so I was doing all these civic projects, and the number one problem in our community were drugs. You know, I, I started a program with a local judge that don't sentence these kids to jail or find them that their parents would would uh, have to pay the fine if, if they weren't if they were misdemeanors sentence them to the streets you know 10 hours on the streets or 20 hours and i would muster them and i'd take them and we'd clean streets and alleys and i would talk to them try to motivate them because i grew up the way they grew up with eight kids living in a shack you know i was in the street gang when i first when i was a kid before i went in the navy so i i they, i spoke their language but i realized that the problem then was drugs they were all involved in, the, in that but the majority of them in drugs so that's when i decided to write this program to try to catch them at an elementary school level. They weren't teaching drug education in those days at a college or high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. And when I when I wrote that program, helping me with the program was a young black man joined the, the uh, JCs that same night I was proposing it at the JC chapter, and he said, I'd like to work with you on that program. And I had a, a white guy, and I said, gee, I already got a guy. And the next day, my friend John DeBoer, the white guy, said, I can't do the project with you, I got a new job. And I said, gee, what's that black guy's name? Oh yeah, Tim Reed. Mm -hmm. And and so Tim and I, we worked on the program. When we went in the classroom, the moment we hit that classroom, I realized it, why it would work. The students were black and white. Right. And we were a young black guy and a young white guy, and we started making them laugh, planting the seeds of the ills of drug abuse. The program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries through JC Publications. And one day, a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. <laughs> and the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued me, and uh, we, we started writing material. And no comedy clubs in those days. We had to do nightclubs, you know, and uh, all black clubs in the north and the south and all white clubs. How did it was you, an experience. Yeah, how did you get booked? I mean, how do you even, you guys just decide, where do you work on your material? You're just like, hey, book us, and then you're doing, you're, you're working on your act, you guys? Yeah, here's, here's the thing. Tim was a salesman for EI DuPont, a marketing rep, and I was selling life insurance at the time. So we both had a background in sales. So we knew how to get meetings, mm. and we knew how to sell ourselves once we got in there. As a matter of fact, we used to sell ourselves far better than the act was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
but but we and then we would rehearse in front of the mirror we would rehearse at his house we would you know that, that's what we did when we would struggle and we start volunteering for every charity that we could find oh wow you know and we would go, go every we'd get any church charity any any uh, a jewish function a, a, you know a catholic function you know protestant function any uh, any charity and we'd offer our services and you guys and, are doing uh, this in like 1969 where it's it's semi nuts isn't it at that point i mean it, there's like rioting, you know, there's the black-white struggle. It's almost like what we have today. It parallels almost what's going on right now. And you guys pulled no it off. No question. It was No question about it. Yeah. It's just like it was. The Vietnam War was raging. Students were protesting the war all over America. African-Americans were rioting in every major city in, in the United States, including Harvey, Illinois, had one of the largest riots in the country, burning <laughs> down street blocks you know the town has never really recovered from that to be honest with you but uh, and i was in the middle of it because that was my neighborhood where the riot was and i and i grew up in that neighborhood and i drove the mayor in and out of the riot zone you know i i um uh, i was a special deputy marshal because oh i knew the area and i knew all the black folks who lived in that area and, and i would take the mayor into groups that i knew were trying to bring peace to the neighborhood so that, that's it was chaos all over america in the midst of that tim and i were trying to make people laugh we weren't preaching we were just trying to make people laugh. We did 11 prisons in one year. We would go anywhere there was um, anywhere there was racial tension, high schools, colleges. We would go perform. Wow. And again, not preach. We would just make them laugh. And I can't tell you the times where after our show, a young black guy would come up and say, you know, I got a white friend that I want to reach out to, but if I do, the brothers will wear me out. But after watching you and Tim having so much fun on stage, I'm going to reach out to my white friend. And then a white guy would come up and say, you know, I've got a black friend, and we, I really like him. We're good buddies, but, you know, the white guys are going to give me a bad time. But watching you and Tim, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to reach out to my black friend. So this, it, you guys do this for like six years, and then... And you guys are cooking them probably at that point. And Tim's like, no, I, I, my dream is to go to Hollywood and become an actor. Is that what happened? Yeah. A, a woman actually enticed him there. Uh, 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 she was a star at the time, uh, Della Reese. She enticed him <laughs> to come there. And he left his wife and, and all that kind of oh stuff. Oh, my God. And, and it, it was it was it was tragic, you know, for for uh, hope for me. It, to me, it was like a broken marriage. I had never been on stage alone. I dreamed that Tim and Tom was going to be the greatest comedy team of all time. That was my dream, you know. And uh, when that shattered, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I I, I was sitting in a bar with my buddy uh, Jim Lapore. He, he owned a bar that I used to be a, a bouncer. To be honest with you, check ID cards, you know. But and and. Uh, I was sitting at the end of the bar. It was two o'clock in the morning. Tim, Tim, uh, Tim was gone to the West Coast, and I was thinking, what can I do? I could either get another black guy and do the same act, or I could uh, get a job in a factory and forget this dream and make my wife happy because she hated show business, or I could, I could do it, go it alone. And sitting there at the bar, I had a couple beers in front of me. I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go it alone. And I remember a book I read that said, if you know what you want to do in life, and if it's a noble endeavor. Search your life and see if there's anything in it that can deter you from that noble achievement and get it out of your life. And I thought about what could stop me if I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and my goal was to get to The Tonight Show. And I said, alcohol, I love drinking. I pushed the two beers in front of me, and I said, I quit. And my buddy came up the bartender, he said, through for the night, Tom? I said, I quit. He said, for tonight, I said, I quit. He said, yeah, right, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> but I never touched another drop in, uh, <clears throat> until I, after I did The Tonight Show. And, uh, 
and, and you know, and that was a success. Once, once in a while, I would have a beer, but I haven't had one in, in years now. I That's just amazing. don't have the info. Wow. I did. So you, <laughs> what's, you go what's in, you the go transfer off. like? Go, go ahead, Lane. Go ahead, Neil. What's the transfer like from the comedy team to like being by yourself on stage? That's a hard transfer. That's a hard. It really is. <clears throat> on the other hand, it also gave me a lot more freedom because when you're with a comedy team, the timing is so important. You know, yeah. the, 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 you, you, you back and forth. One time, after years of working on a Playboy circuit with Tim, a, a reporter from the Chicago Daily News said to watch Tim and Tom is like watch a master ping pong match. <clears throat> because we were doing five, six shows a night and we got our timing down, you wow. know. Yeah. Then when you're a stand-up, when you go out there alone, it's a totally different dynamic. Now, you let that laughter, you know, uh, if you tried to describe, um, if you describe, if you dissect comedy, it gets boring, but... It's, 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 um, when you're, when I'm, when you talk about timing, I can teach you a lot of things about stand up comedy. It, I can't teach you timing. You either have it or you don't. You know, if you, if I did 25 minutes tomorrow night at the Laugh Factory, a 25 minute set and scored, and I did that same exact 25 minute set, say opening for Sinatra in front of 20,000 people, it has a totally different dynamic. Yeah. You know, so laughter, when I, talk to young comedians and, and Lenny's not a young comedian but you know <laughs> it, it, I, I, I put it this way there's a pond of water out there and you've got a rock you throw the rock high in the air as high as you can and then it comes all the way down and it hits the pond and it ripples across pretend that's laughter when that laughter is on its way up you don't move on your next line right. when that laughter is on its way you'd cut, you'd cut off the laughter same way with yes. your comedy team partner some nights when that rock is starting to come down just a little, that's when I move. And some nights I let it come halfway down. And some nights I let it hit the pond. And some nights I let it hit the pond and ripple all the way across before I move to my next line. Yeah. I can't tell you I'm going to do that. My brain sets that. And my yeah. brain gets that feeling, you know what I mean? And, and you know when to move on the next line. You know, um, yeah. you know it's again. Amazing. You go, so I'm just, uh, we, we got about two minutes left in this segment. So you go to LA, right? And you're living in your car and what you're doing spots now at the comedy store somehow. And I'm not living in my car. I didn't oh. have a car. I, I was sleeping <laughs> in an abandoned car. Oh, abandoned. It was an old Nash, old Nash Rambler up on blocks. I was house sitting for a girl singer that I got. I had gotten her a job one time and she let me house sit while she was on the road. And now I'm hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, uh, begging to work for free at the comedy store for a month. She came back and she had a boyfriend that was very jealous and didn't know I was staying there, so she told me I couldn't stay there. I ended up, long story short, having a fight with her boyfriend and I ended up sleeping in this Nash Rambler out in the alley there, and I stayed there for a month. If the, old, the front seat came down and it was like a bed oh I would wash God. up in a gas station and hitchhike to the comedy store every night and one night I finally got on you know, and then and I, wait and then long story short five years later you do the Tonight Show am I nuts or is that the timeline it was 1975 no no I did one year later, I did the Tonight one Show. One year later, so 1970 was the, or you went out? No, no I, 1969 to 1975, late 74, was when Tim Reed and I were a oh. comedy team. Okay. When the team split up, you know, I, I, about a year later, I did the Tonight Show. That is unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Do you, do you run into him out there in L.A. or no? Yes, it, we're the best of friends to this day. We've always been the best of friends. Um, we wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. Netflix is talking about us now, maybe doing a six one-hour series. Oh, wow. And not Tim and I, with two guys to play us, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, what it was like. 
touring the nation as the first black and white comedy. Oh, that's a great idea. That is a great idea. And let me I'll ask you something. You, go ahead, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm never going to cut you off, Tom. Uh, Tom I was just going to say, I'll tell you something interesting. That Tim was laying up with this woman up in Beverly Hills, and, and in the book he explains it. He said, you know, he was smoking a little grass and kind of not paying attention to his career, and they were laying in bed that night watching me on my first appearance <laughs> on The Tonight Show. And when wow. he saw me score like I did, the next day he got up, packed his things, and he went down, and he said, in many ways, Tom's biggest break on The Tonight Show was my biggest break, too. He then went on to, as you know, to yeah. great fame and WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. He's on a show called Sister, Sister, you know. Yeah. yeah, he's director. He's a good director. Yeah, yeah. And let me ask you one final question for this segment. Um, you've done everything in show business, like everybody, you know, Vegas and worked with great people and stand up on your own, the Tonight Show, blah, blah, blah. If you had, if I give you whatever project you want to do, what would you do? Like, what, is there anything left that you went, oh man, I wish I would have done that show or what? Is there anything left? Well, there's a bunny in Cincinnati that I... <laughs> I'll take that it. I, I kind of passed on, but you know, well, I'll take it. You know, here, here Lenny, you'll you'll appreciate this. Yeah. I I was working at um, Harris Hotel one time in Lake Tahoe, and George Burns was appearing at Caesars next door, and I had done the the Dean Martin roast roasting George Burns, and I had met him many times, and I really liked him. What a wonderful man he was! And so I rushed over to catch his show, and he was 95 years old, and he didn't rush out to the microphone, but when he got out there, he did a good hour and 10 minutes, scored. I went backstage afterward. He was in the dressing room looking at some three by five cards, and I said, "Hey, George." He looked up and he said, "Oh, hi, Tommy. I was." working on some new material tonight Jeez. and i thought that's what i want to be i want to be 95 years old working on new material well, that's my wow i think you're gonna have that i think you're headed right there <laughs> which is a good segue to my second segment which is uh sinatra um obviously the book is it's very much as you know how you get to sinatra you know still standing my journey from streets and saloons to the stage in sinatra he called you he, he was consider himself a saloon singer and he called you a saloon comic so that's yeah yeah that's pretty interesting like did you consider yourself a saloon comic i mean you grew up in saloons but I and mean, you worked nightclubs but did did you feel that was your act he meant that he meant that as a as a um compliment a guy from the new york times we were in a restaurant called patchy's in new york and on west 57th street and we were having dinner and this guy was walking out he was from the new york times and he said to frank I, jokingly, he said, hey, uh, I got a question. What do you keep this guy Dreesen around for? And Frank said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And the guy said, well, yeah, besides that fact. He said, well, if I'm a, he said, if I'm a saloon singer, he said, and I am, then Tommy's a saloon comedian. By that, I mean, we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. So he, he didn't mean it as, he meant that we're like neighborhood guys. And that's who, when I was alone with Frank and in, in the, in the, in the pun intended in the wee small hours of the morning right. sometimes he would just be a guy from hoboken and i was a guy from harvey illinois and we we both grew up on the streets sort of and we had that kind of um uh you know that kind of thing in common and and so it, being a saloon comedian i liked it because I, hey i was a bartender my mother was a bartender you know and mm -hmm. uh, in new york they used to call that you when you're tending bar you're behind the stick Yep. You know, because, you know, the, when you're pulling the, the, the beer, yep. uh, for the draft beer, they, they say, we would never say uh, 
uh, if you're in New York at 10 bar, you'd never say I'm going to 10 bar tonight. Say, I'm behind the stick. I can't go with you guys. Tonight. I'm behind the <laughs> stick. You know? Let me ask you something. When you open for him, it's driving nuts. What do you do? You do 20, 25? You're in a big theater. How long do you, you do up there? Lenny, this is, this is why, why he kept me around. First of all, I changed my material a lot. I was always working on new material because I, I was doing the Tonight Shows and you had to keep coming up with a new six minutes. So I was always working on new material. Yeah. But he would say to me some nights, there's 20,000 people out there, Tom. By the way, Lenny, let me give you the, the scenario. Yeah. I say, hey, Lenny, we're at the Nassau Coliseum, Lenny, and you're gonna open for Frank Sinatra. And this is what Frank told me one night, and I'll tell, you, tell it to you. Hey, Lenny, it's five minutes before you're going on now. There's 20,000 people out there, Lenny. I want you to go out there for the next 45 minutes, and I want you to hold their attention, Lenny. Oh, yeah, one more thing, Lenny. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh for the next 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing, Lenny. I want you to hold them, their attention, make them laugh, but I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no orchestra, nothing, just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Lenny, not one of them came to see you <laughs> that's true you know what it's funny that you say that but you got to put your ego in check you know you're probably killing and they didn't even know you're coming and then you're like oh yeah i'm the opening act here's frank sinatra it's got to be like blows you away right well here's, here's here's so in those in arenas i do 45 minutes now in, in, wow. in vegas and tahoe and reno you know, uh, uh, I would do maybe uh, like 30 minutes, 25. Frank would change it all the time. He might say to me, do 30 tonight, Tommy. My reed's a little sore, uh, meaning his throat. He always called his throat his reed. Right. And my reed's a little sore. And But I'd say, do 30, okay. And I'd be heading, getting ready to go on stage, and he'd say, you know what, Tommy, do do uh, do 25. I'm, I'm, maybe I'll add an exercise. He'd say, 25. Okay, now your brain is, I'll change that bit. I'll do that. Now you're getting ready. And somebody might run up and at the last minute say, ah, hey, the old man wants you to do 20. He's going to add another song, you know. You know, so now you're going, oh my God. So, but he would change it all the time. And, and I could adjust, I, you know. But I'll tell you a trick that I did. Yeah. Opening in front of 20,000 people, I did that for 14 years. Out in Hawaii in front of 40,000 people. Wow. When you walk out on that stage, I tell new comedians this all the time, when you walk out on that stage in front of 20,000 people and they all came to see the other guy, first joke is on you. I would walk out, and, and, and I'll catch this in a second. I would walk out and, and say, how many of you out there Applaud! How many of you out there were thinking Frank Sinatra was coming out? <laughs> you know, and because the orchestra go ba ba da da ba, you know, New York, and they say, "Ladies and gentlemen, Tom, I say, how many of you out there applaud? Were thinking Frank Sinatra was coming out, and they'd applaud." And I'd say, "I know just how you feel. I'm a little bit disappointed myself." <laughs> now, the joke is on me, right? right? But then I'd say, "How many of you out there are in this arena for your very first time? Applaud!" And they would applaud. I'd say, how many of you out there are seeing Frank Sinatra live your very first time? Applaud. They'd applaud. I'd say, how many of you out there aren't wearing any underwear? Applaud. Now, <laughs> they'd applaud. Now, here's my point. I wasn't putting good material up front. Right. It would be a waste. Right. Um, I talk, you react. I talk. You notice I didn't say raise your hand. Right. I didn't say how many. I said, I talk, you react. I said, applaud. Now, I'm bringing them into me, into me, into me. You know, and now, I, when I finally got them where they're reacting to me, you know, because people are still filing their seats in a 20,000-seat yeah. arena. When I yes. finally got them focused on me, then I went into material, and it would always be a local... The first three or four jokes were about that area. I would always research the area and have a couple of localized jokes about the local mayor or about the, local, or about the governor, about something that was just in the news that we were all aware of, that sort of thing. And then you would finally get into your rich material, yeah. you know.
Let me ask you something wow. about did you you watched him from the side every show or you you would watch a little bit and then he would he watch you uh, both um was did he like comedy? Oh yeah, he watched me all the time and he would always comment, "Oh Tom, I like that new material about this." Or like he never ever told me what not to do except one night, one night um can, can we swear on the show? Yeah, of what? course. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm it wasn't one night uh, I had a, a, a heckler. The guy wasn't really a heckler. He was one of those. Guys, was a nice guy. He was talking back and forth to me. So, like, what I do with hecklers all the time is I give them enough rope to hang, rope to hang themselves. You know, I, I I keep talking to the guy till I feel the guy out. And if he's a bad guy or, or a good guy, he might be just a guy having fun. Right. But this particular night, the guy was a good guy, and everything he said, I would. I, oh, you did that, and then why would you do that? You know, and I led him to a place where he he said something he did, and I said. No shit, and and it got a huge, huge laugh because I had set him up that that the audience would realize that what he did was a dorky, dumb thing to do. And I said, "No shit." Now it got a huge laugh. Afterward, Frank said to me, "Tommy, that was funny retort you had going with that guy, but you don't need to be, you don't need to swear words, Tommy, to be funny." <laughs> yeah, and if he so, saw some of the comedians today. He's spinning in his grave. Yeah, that's you know? right. That's right. That's absolutely right. And what? Let me ask you something. You've you watch him a million times. You've seen him hold that audience a million times. What did you? What was it about him, in your opinion? Like, what was his greatest strength? Was it technical ability? Was it his confidence? Was it an Italian thing? What him? What made him this amazing, like polarizing act? Aside from the fact that he was the greatest pop singer of all time, right. <clears throat> aside from the fact that he went to the studio 1,431 times, he recorded over 100 albums, wow. you know, 1,200 original songs, 1,200 songs written specifically for him. Right. You know, that, that, aside from the fact that, was he in the mob? Did he have them? You know, all that, that, that the background about him. So when he walked out on stage, he electrified an audience. You know, right. watching him walk to the microphone, I, and I watched him night after night, he created more excitement walking into the microphone than most people do with their entire act. <laughs> yeah. He hadn't sung a note yet. <laughs> you know, he was Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah. But he took command of that stage. And the other thing is that he was vulnerable in every song. Right. You know, as a comedian, Lenny, you know, sometimes you got to pour your guts out there. Yep. you got to pour, hey, this is, you know, show them your pain. Yeah. You know, write a joke about it. Show me your pain. They love to see your pain. Right. But he, he, in between songs, he was Frank, the kid from Hoboken. Right. But when he sang that song, it's you know when he when, you know he he you, people forget what a brilliant actor he was. Right. He won the Academy Award, uh, and I once sat around with him, Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, Clint Eastwood, Robert Wagner. We we're sitting around Frank's backyard in the compound. About three in the morning, they were talking film and everything, and they were. I was. I noticed how much. Um, reverence they were showing to Frank. And I was curious, I said, Frank, did you ever study acting? I want to know who he studied with. And Gregory Peck grabbed my arm, he said, acting lessons would have ruined him. Yeah, It was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. When you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it was a script. Yeah. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? Yeah. And he would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman left him and he's never gonna find love again. And you felt that. And you felt that when it was a joy of a song, come fly with me. That's why he was. That's why he was so commanding mm -hmm. on stage. You know? um, yeah. He was. Was he a moody guy? Was he? Uh, a happy, I mean, he was known to. Uh, you know, get what, yeah, what, what, what was it? What when the shows were over? What was it like after the shows? Like, what was the the hangout like? What was the? What was all that like? I mean, that's in, answer, in, 
In answer to both of your questions, yes, he was a moody guy. He, he once said that to uh, on an interview many, many years ago that he was a 24-karat manic depressive, you know, that he, he had swing moods. Uh, toward the end of his life, he was taking something called Alavel, which is like a mood stabilizer, you know. Mm -hmm. But he, he had swing moods. But after the show, the, the moment he came off stage, you know, 20,000-seat arenas, and I'd be waiting for him, and we'd head for the private jet, or we'd head, if we were at, at, at a gig in the city, we'd head to the nearest hangout joint where he wanted to have something to eat, like a little wine, and then drink Jack Daniels So the sun came up. He never went to bed till the sun came up. You know? But it, so it was exciting when he, he'd come off stage. We were still buzzing, you know, because it was a hot crowd, and and, uh, and and I'd say, great show tonight, and a great crowd. And he'd say, yeah, they came to play, Tommy. They came to play. Yeah, was. Do you remember him ever coming off me like they sucked? They, like the crowd was, wasn't like, he, he hated them? Did you ever? No, I never. I never heard him say that, but I had heard him say I suck. You know, he, mm. he'd say, you know, like if he, he didn't feel like he had his best performance. Right. You know, uh, and Sammy Davis. When I toured with Sammy Davis, he was the same way. Yeah. Sammy would knock his brains out, but every now and then he'd say, "I wasn't there tonight. They were there, but I wasn't there." And you know, Lenny, as yep. a comedian, there's some nights I go out and I, I, I'm really hot, yep. and they're not. Yeah. And there's some nights they're hot and I'm not. Absolutely. And, and there's some nights, and this I always say. I describe stand-up comedy like sex. I said, some nights I'm hot and they're not, some nights they're hot and I'm not, and some nights we're both hot at the same time. And <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> uh, he toured till he was 80 years old, is that right? Yeah. Oh my God, like that's insane. How did he sound at 80? Like that's, in, that's almost nuts for a singer to do that, right? You know well, the last song, he, he last, uh, the last time he ever performed, I was with him um, and it was down in the, the in Palm Desert at the Desert Marriott. In fact, they're naming that room after him now. Wow. Uh, and the last song he ever sang is "The Best Is Yet to Come," mm. and that's that's on his tombstone. <laughs> the best is yet to come, Francis Albert Sinatra. Oh, wow. and, uh, he, he while he wasn't the the singer of a young man, he still never lost his acting skills. Right. So he would act out those songs. Now he was a you know, seventy eight year old guy in a bar whose woman left him. Right. And he's really never gonna find love. You know? <laughs> but <laughs> I told him I told him one night, you know, he wasn't gonna go on because his throat was real he called it his reed like I said earlier. Yeah. He said, My reed's too sore. So uh, I told him one night, I said, you know, with all due respect, Frank, if you went out there and read the telephone book, they'd be thrilled. They just want to be with you. you <laughs> they know? do. They do. <laughs> Neil, do you have anything else about Sinatra you want to ask? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm so curious always about that. I mean, you talked about a little bit about after the show. Is just is everyone wanting a piece of you guys after these these shows, and you're going out in the town, and and what's that that world like? What is that like? Well, let, let me clear up. No one wanted a piece of me. <laughs> <laughs> when you're away, I'll tell you a quick story. When I, we we were at a place called Lord Fletcher's in Palm Springs. And all these house guests were at his house, Kirk Douglas, um, Gregory Peck, uh, Clint Eastwood, all these big stars, Jack Lemmon. And Frank took us to Lord Fletcher's, and I had my wife with me. I was married at the time, and, and we, all the wives, and big table, and people were staring, at, of course, at all these. Now, uh, it, everybody's getting up, we're going to get, go get the cars and go back to Frank's compound. And I was sitting there with my wife. She was just finished something to eat, and I was going to get up and go. And a guy came up and said, Mr. Dreesen, do you mind, could I have your autograph? And I said to my wife, in front of this guy, I said, I'm sitting with Kirk Douglas, <laughs> with Clint with Frank Sinatra. I said, in Gregory Peck, and this guy wants my autograph. And the guy said, Gregory Peck, where? And he ran outside <laughs> and left me standing there with that stupid napkin that I was going to sign. That's awesome. 
Oh, man, well, but, a... but you know what Frank would do in answer to your question? He would post security so we could go to a restaurant and sit in the back and enjoy. And security would sit and keep people from interrupt because they would interrupt him in, in, at every sentence. You yeah. know, if people say you couldn't finish a meal, he couldn't finish a sentence. Yeah. But he, on the way out, he would sign. Yeah, he had to handle yeah, but he, it. He had to handle it guys, pretty well, right? These guys were partying, though. Yeah, they could. Drink. Pardon me? That he could, let me. We'll get to that, Neil. He handled it pretty well, right? That Tom? Yeah, sometimes if if you swamped him with a lot of cameras and mm-hmm. like the paparazzi gentleman, he would get infuriated. Yeah. He would really he'd, he'd call them all kinds of names. And, you know, and, he and, told me it many years ago. You can't trust the media. Yeah. Tommy, they're not your friends. Yeah. That's he true. said they're not your friends. They'll they'll lead you to believe they're your friends, and then then they'll 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 destroy you. He said you just you can't trust them. He said, and the the, the by and large not honest. You know, in the old days, journalists would would. Uh, before they ran a story, there was a guy in Chicago named Irv Cupson, and he was the best. If he would said, I saw, somebody said, I saw Sinatra and Dreesen last night at such and such a place, and a fight broke out, or whatever the story was, he would not run with that story. He would call you. He'd say, Tom, I just got to get a hold of you and say, I've got a word that there was a thing, blah, blah, blah. What happened? Or uh, I'm going to go with this story unless you tell me it's not true. Mm. And I would say, oh, no, it didn't happen that way. And we had nothing to do with that. He'd say, thank you. He would check the story out. Journalists do not do that anymore. No. They run with it. I don't care what you say. They run with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, you know Lenny's a cross-dresser, and they run with that, of course. <laughs> Lenny is a cross-dresser. But yeah. it, it Stop telling people that, Tom. Stop telling people that. Um, <laughs> Um, let me. Ask, I'm going to pimp you for one story here. The first, when you talked to um, Mickey, you run, you were working with Smokey Robinson, right? You're opening for him, and then you run it. You went to see Sinatra, and then you run into his manager, who just that's how it was. Just a chance meeting, or he, yeah. he was looking for you. And tell us, it was an, it was an, it's, it, like everything else. It's fate, you know. But I was touring with Smokey Robinson. We were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and Frank was at Harris. And uh, his daughter Nancy was opening for him at the time, and uh, I, I rushed over to catch his show. I didn't, I didn't even change out of my stage clothes, and I was running into the showroom, and they all knew me there. And I had called the maitre d' earlier, and he said, "We'll put a place for you, Tom. Don't worry about." It. And I'm running in because I wanted to watch Frank walk to that microphone. That was so exciting. I didn't want to miss that. So as I'm running in the showroom, the vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, a uh, very powerful guy, and he, he saw me, and uh, I had worked for him many times at Harris, and he was talking to this big heavyset guy with a cigar and he said Tommy come here come here and I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening and he said Tommy this is Mickey Rudin well I recognized the name that was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and a very powerful guy and I said uh, he said Mickey this is Tom Dreesen and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra and the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard that a million times and he rolled his eyes and he looked uh, he said to me hey kid and he winked at the vice president but I caught the wink he said hey kid if I gave you a week with Frank would you want more than uh, 50,000 I said Mr. Rubin put it this way if you gave me a week with Frank would you want more than 50,000 and he started laughing <laughs> he laughed and I said hey I like this kid and then a week later I got a call uh, would you want to work with Frank at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City New Jersey and I thought yeah you know I'll, I'll, I'll do it and I'll maybe get my picture taken with him and hang it in every bar in Chicago and, yeah. and that will be it and, and it turns out that the second night there I worked with him, we, his wife Barbara, and he took me to dinner, and I can remember like it was yesterday, in the middle of the dinner, he set his knife and his fork down, he looked at me, he said, I like your material, and I like your style, I'd like you to do a few other dates with me, if you're interested, and I didn't say, let me check my calendar, I said, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it well, turned into almost 14 years. Did you have to go wow. back to smoking and go, I got some 
Bad news for you, Smokey. Smokey's <laughs> <laughs> oh, my dear friend. Smokey and I ran marathons together. You know, you know, right. I, you know he, Smokey. You know, when you work with artists like that, Sammy Davis told me, Tom, I'm going to bring you with me for a few years everywhere and keep increasing your price, and then I'm going to let you go <clears throat> because you can't become a star in the shadow of another star. Right. Right. And he said, so, and, but I'll increase your income so that wherever you go, you, we set a precedent. And he said, I'll also, I'll make sure you get your name on my marquee with me oh. at Caesar's Palace or wherever you work. So any other artists you work with, we'd set a precedent that you get your name on the marquee. Because a, a lot of big acts wouldn't even put the opening act's name on the marquee. Right. You know? That's pretty cool. All right, let's go on to the next one. I want to go back to stand-up for uh, the third corner we're going to do is uh, stand-up, Letterman, and Carson. So you go... By the way, I want to talk about stand-up for one second. We, Neil and I both, uh, are doing the research of this, we both watched this set that's on YouTube, you at the Laugh Factory, about two years ago, and it's uh, it's a title, it, it's, um, what was it about, Neil? It was uh, about... Uh, oh, fam- Family Jewels. Family stuff. Jewels, man. I'll tell you what, that whole set that's posted, you still got it. I mean, this is like, I mean, what are you, you're 80 years old now? I mean, you... Your timing is impeccable. It's like boom, your material's still great, your timing is still great. How many guys out there who are eighty that can still like bang it at the Laugh Factory? Well, I gotta tell you, I, I don't. Uh, Satchel Page once said, "How old would you be if no one ever told you how old you were?" That's true. And 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 the, you know, and, and the other thing is, Clint Eastwood many years ago when I said to him, um, you know, I said, "How do you do it?" And he, he was eighty and still doing movies. Now he's ninety. He just yep. turned ninety. I said, "How do you do it?" He said, "I don't let the old man in." Yeah, and I never forgot that. You know, yeah. I don't let the old man in, and so when I get out of bed in the morning, and I, sometimes you're going, oh, and I say, oh no, I ain't letting you in today, pal. Not today. <laughs> I was watching. And, and, I was watching YouTube, and I'm laughing in the other room. My wife's like, "What's so funny?" I go, "You got to see this bit that Tom Dreesen has about knowing the pain of childbirth. It's hilarious. Like, yeah, you played running back, and you know, you got hit in the nuts one time, and women complain that, oh, you'll never know the chain, pain, uh, pain of childbirth. Like, yeah." I, Nobody wants to, nobody wants to get hit in the nuts twice. It's funny. Yeah, well, the the punchline of that is, I say, women, you know, women say men couldn't stand the pain of childbirth. You know, men couldn't stand the pain of childbirth. Guys, am I right? Women have no idea the pain a man experiences when he gets a good swift kick in the nuts. And then I pause <laughs> and I say, because I have heard women say one year after childbirth. It might be nice to have another baby. <laughs> and then I pause and yeah. I let that sink in it's in the audience class and I say, I say, <laughs> yeah, and and, and uh, it might be nice to have another baby. Yeah. Have you ever heard a man say, yeah, God, I wish I'd have another good swift kick in the nuts. You don't even need to say the punchline. You on the pause, people were dying. It's hilarious. Yeah. They get it, you know. Um, well, you know, again, I go to the Laugh Factory for one reason when I come when I'm off the road. I yep. do a lot of corporate dates and I got a one man show that I do. But I go to the Laugh Factory because. In the audience are young black, young white, young Asian, young Latino. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to stay in touch with that audience. And my material transfers, you know, that, you know there are such idiots in show business who would say, well, we got an audience of 24-year-old people. We need to get a 24-year-old yeah. comedian. Yeah. You know, that, you know, if you're funny, you're funny. I used to watch Rodney Dangerfield destroy the audience at the Laugh Factory. Yeah. And they were all you young know, and, kids. And yeah. He would crush. It's it, it, it just asinine to even think like that, you know, that... Uh, well, you know, if you're, if you're funny, you're, there's only one rule in comedy, by the way, Lenny. You know that. There's only one rule. Yeah, be, be funny. funny. That's, That's the only it. rule. Yeah, they don't care. The, I was. Um, I remember when I you would come on the Tonight Show. That was when I got to stay up. You know, do, do everything. My my parents were like, please let me just try and stay up to see the comic. I was always 
amazed by, and you were saying you were so calm, you worked on being calm. That's what I, I think the most, I, I mean, total pro is definitely one thing. Joke, 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 joke. I took that away from you. And, you know, like your act, I was very impressed with that. And then you're just calm. It didn't matter what the reaction was, huge, medium, whatever. You just go on like it's nothing, doing six minutes, and then it's done. I'm like, I've never, I've never seen anybody that, like, calm. Plus, you have the greatest head of hair in the history of show business. <laughs> I know it. And people used to, I still got more, I, I'm Irish-Italian, so you know why everybody in my ancestors all had a lot of hair. And, and people used to write in and say, I love your wig. That's a great toupee you got. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was, it's my hair, you know, but, but uh, here's the thing. I give motivation speeches all the time on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. Yeah. I've read every book on the powers of mind that I could read my whole life, I've been, because I came from such a negative background and I wanted to change that. But one thing I, t I tell young comedians, or any public speaker, act as if you are and you will be. Right. You know, if you what what would you like? Well, I like to be calm all the time. I like to look like I'm in control. I'm in charge. And and the, the you know I say okay, start acting as if you are. Yeah. And you will be. Huh. Now, the other thing, too, most comedians think when they're going to do a gig and they're new and they, they picture the, 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 the stage they're going to be on and, and they start thinking of all the negative things. What if this doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? And then your hands start to sweat, your heart starts to pound, uh, a pound because the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. It only knows what you program into it. And it does it by images. So when you program a negative your sub uh, image in your mind, your subconscious mind starts at, your body starts reacting to that like it happened. I say cancel that. See yourself out there calm, mm -hmm. relaxed, enjoying the moment, enjoying the crowd. See it, feel it, and believe it. And you can achieve it. it. And you just keep practicing that. And the last thing I'll say is I say, Lenny, here's what I'd say to you. Yeah. I mean, you're a veteran, but I don't have to say it. I'd say, <laughs> Lenny, your wife says to you, Lenny, we got 20 people in the living room, and we, dinner isn't ready yet. Do me a favor. Go out there and tell them some of those stories, you know, <laughs> that you, you know about growing up in, on the island. Now, you walk out. And when you walk out through that curtain, it's like walking through your living room. This is our house. It isn't their house. Right. This is our house. Right. And most people walk out on the stage like you're in a foreign territory. No, no. If they could do what we do, they'd be up there. Right. They can't do what we do. That's why they're... So this is our house. And I don't care what show, what showroom you're in. It's your house. And it's the last thing I'll say is it's a conversation, not a presentation. Right. Is it your act? you damn right it's your act. It's your job to make it look like it's not an act. Right. Yeah. Uh, I um I wish my wife one time would be like please go out there and tell some of those show business stories like because I have some great ones but she's like what we get home and she's always like why do I, what do you got why do you have to tell all those stories why why what? I'm like they like those stories that's what people want they like him you know that that's funny they are like what's going on with you and the road and the just who'd you meet you know then okay I can talk about you know the drywall that we put up but what good is that. You know, she hates when well, I tell remember, stories. Remember to this, Lenny, you know this. Comedy is two things when you're writing a joke. Number one, it's nine-tenths surprise. That's right. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Right. Who's the victim here? You know, is it me? Is it society? Is it the government? The airlines? Right. Is it my wife? Is it the guy who's hanging drywall? Uh, the, the punk rocker dating my daughter? Or like Rodney said, I get no respect. It was Rodney, you know. Right. Um, 
Yeah, it's good. It's good. Let, let me ask you something about the Tonight Show. So and Letterman, I want to get to those two guys real quick. Um, the Tonight Show. So you do the first one and it goes well. He has you back six, you know, fifty times, sixty times. I mean, it, how do you crazy. get booked? Does he make a call? Get that kid back? Or you met him sixty times? You must have had some relationship with him after that, right? No, he was very shy. And, and what I did, though, I, I realized when I first started doing the show, when he, see, when you do your first appearance on The Tonight Show in those days to America, you had arrived, but not to our industry. Right. When you sat down and talked to Johnny, that's when you arrived. Right. So now you were accepted. So when I finally got to sit down and talk to Johnny after a couple of sh- shots, I realized that in commercial break, he was very shy around strangers or even, even normal people. Even in public, he was kind of shy. So I would... Pick up. He would sometimes call Fred Decorder over, and Fred would talk to him while you're sitting there waiting for them to come out of commercial break. But I would do some research on. He just uh, he heard his back playing tennis, so he just bought a new car. And as soon as they so we'll be right back after this with Tom Dreesen. I would say, hey, I heard you got a new Mercedes. Is that the the the, the three two or whatever? And and I would engage in conversation with him. And he used to make notes, and I still have some. I'm looking at them right now. They're underneath my desk pad. He would make notes on how I could fix a joke. He He'd say, you know that one joke you did about it's good, but if you could say this as a topper to that, and and I, I kept those notes that he wrote to me, you know. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I, I established Amazing. that relationship with them there in, in commercial break. But the reason they had me back after a while, they knew, you know, if they, if they used to screen your material all the time, yep. and then after a while, they knew that I knew what they expected of me. So I had like carte blanche. I could call and say. Um, and this is what I would do, Lenny, sometimes. I didn't have the first joke written for the new, and it would be three weeks away. I'd call and say, I'm available March 18th. All right, Tom, you're on, and I don't have the first joke. <laughs> Necessity is the mother of invention. Right. You know, I would, I would then take my tape recorder, and I'm going to the comedy store, to the improvisation, wow. to the laugh factory. You know, yeah. I'm going, and, I'm, I'm, and, and I'd force myself to come up with this material, you know. And he loved um, you. He loved you every time. I mean, he must have loved you. He had you back all those times. But but he was one of those. He was one of those guys who loved you or hated you, right? He he was. If he didn't like you, forget it. Yeah, and, and he, you know he was. He, he could be. He could be a kingmaker, or he could you know. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of comics that couldn't get on if he, if he didn't like you. Yeah. But I will say this, Johnny Carson. I, I could name you fifty to sixty comedians, myself included, who he helped launch their career. Name me one that Jay Leno launched. That's right. Name me zero. You know what I'm saying? Wow, that was a um, different era. You know, and, and Jay's my buddy, but he just, they, 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 the Tonight Show didn't launch comedians the way they did when Johnny was there. But, but then again, Johnny, television was smaller too, so Johnny had a larger audience, you know. Oh my God, he had the audience. When it split off and that whole thing with, um, you know, Jay Leno's manager or whatever, and Letterman didn't get the Tonight Show, that whole thing, um, that. That was the end. I mean, I did. It took me a long time to get on Letterman, and uh, but you know, like you said, when you got back through the curtain, you had a development deal. You had, you know, you worked all over the place. I got my friends went. That was awesome. And the end. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, it's, a it's a different time. Congratulations. That's all I got, and it was the great. I got into that business the same reason was to, I saw Letterman in college before he had The Tonight Show, the the first one, the late night one, the Tom Snyder one, and then um, I just fell in love with this guy. I'm like, I think that's the goal. And that guy's gonna be huge. I'm gonna, my goal is to get on Letterman. And it took me, oh, what'd you say? It took you one year? It took me 17 years. <laughs> <to get on laughs> well, uh, David, David, by the way, 
did launch a comedian, a comedian named Jay Leno. That's Jay right. Leno, w- right. w- w- you know, when David was at NBC, he had Jay on all the time on uh, What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef? Book, you know? Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and next thing you know, Jay's hot, you know. Yeah. So, it yeah, they both- have a strange relationship, but they're, they're both friends of mine, but David is closer because David, you know, David calls me, you know, every other day. Let me tell you a great David Letterman story. You know, first of all, I did 50 of his shows. Yeah. I think I was on his show more than any other comedian. At least that's what the staff told me. <laughs> but but I always was prepared. It wasn't like people, I mean, he was my buddy and he was doing me a favor, letting me on that show. But I, I came prepared. Yep. I, I knew what he wanted and I always had stories and with punchlines and funny stuff, you know. And we had fun together because it was old buddies who hadn't seen each other in a long time. Yep. But I got to tell you, he's, he, here's a great story for you. He calls me about a month ago and he said, Tom, every time you do an interview or I do an interview and people say, how did you meet Tom Dreesen or how did you meet Dave Letterman? You tell the same story that I do. <laughs> I came off, this, 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 he said, it's the first night in L.A. years ago when Dave came to L.A. and I was doing a set and I came off stage and Dave came up. He's a brand new guy. He had a beard, a little red beard in those days. He said, hi, I'm Dave Letterman. I'm from Indianapolis. And I loved your set. And I said, oh, thank you, Dave. So you're in Indianapolis. And I start talking baseball and stuff and took it to him. I'm so extroverted that I didn't realize he was introverted. If I'd have known how shy and what a recluse he was, I probably would have respected that. But by the time I realized that, we were friends. You know, I would, every Aww. time I'd see him, I said, we became friends. So Dave said, I said, yeah, Dave, well, that's how we met. He said, but it's a boring story. <laughs> he said, it's a boring story. From now on, tell people that you came off stage and I was in the parking lot and I stole some material from you and you beat the shit out of me in the parking lot. <laughs> I said, now why would I tell that story? He said, because it's a better story. <laughs> now, two weeks go by, two weeks go by and he calls me and he asked me if I knew the governor of Illinois because he had a problem that he wanted to talk to. I said, I met the governor, but I don't know him, but I do know the Senate Majority Leader, John Culleton. He said, well, my wife, Regina, has a friend who is an adult, has an adult son who has autism, and these autistic adults in Illinois have some ground where they grow corn and beans and, and, and stuff like that, and tomatoes, and then when it gets to fruition, they give it to the homeless, and the state is coming to take that away, I guess. So I need to talk to somebody. So I, I got John Cullerton, the Senate Majority Leader. I called him, and he said, oh, Tom, we're working on and no problem, tell Dave it's going to be taken care of. And I said, do me a favor, would you tell Dave that, because it was some complications about a statute or something and you could explain it better than me he said sure and I started hanging up I said oh John when you tell Dave that you're going to help him tell him the only reason you're helping him is because Dreesen beat the shit out of him he said okay I'll do it now <laughs> you guys will love this Ten minutes later, my phone rings. I said, hello. And Dave said, didn't I tell you it's the better story? I told you that's a better story. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, he was now we- he, he, he was a big fan of mine. They, I found out, like, after I did the show, it took me forever to get on. He had me on. I was on three times. And then he gave me this really great intro for my third one because he knew that they told me this is going to be the last one. But... It broke my heart because I think I was gonna I was gonna get to be on that show a lot and it was my dream and I would have gone back so he would have probably broke me if uh, you know if he kept going um, but uh, I just when you tell him just tell him I love him I, I I started in the business he thinks I'm nuts but probably for saying it but he's the reason I got in the business and he's the reason you know my whole career is based on me wanting to get on that show so I, I he, love he, him. He, I, I'll tell him and I tell you what 
Lenny, he is the hardest guy in the world to take a compliment. He just can't take a compliment. He will change the subject and everything. I, I, and I, I tease him all the time, you know, uh, about that. He just can't. But I, I force him with a compliment. You know? okay. And by the way, he doesn't like to be hugged. I'm Italian. You know, we hug stop signs. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always a hugger. Yeah. And I wouldn't let him not let me. I'd, I'd say, Dave, how you doing? I'd hug him. And he'd cringe, you know. But he's so happy with this COVID-19. Now he doesn't have to hug anybody. <laughs> Let me ask you, what you, you once said about him, um, he was never comfortable on a nightclub stage, but he was on a sound stage. Um, yeah. Like that, that's pretty rare, right? Well, you know, when I first saw Dave, you know, when he would go up at the la uh, comedy show, we would, the comics, we loved to watch him, and Jay too, by the way, we'd all rush mm -hmm. to watch Jay work. Jay's, Jay's a master stand-up comedian. Yep. He could do two straight hours and, and just go on and on and on. But, but you know, uh, we'd go watch Dave because he was so witty and so sharp, yep. but he never really was fond of uh, uh, doing stand-up, and you can tell because when he had that show all those years, he was offered huge sums of money to come to Vegas and, and Atlantic City, and he would never do it. But um, well, I, well, the first time that I went with him, he was doing the Tonight Show, and it was his first appearance on the Tonight Show. This, he was all the way over, he's talking about, oh my God, I'm I'm, 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 I'm back in Indianapolis in the morning, and you know all that negative <laughs> stuff. <clears throat> uh, get the, keep the car running. We got to get out of here fast, and all that. <laughs> and he went up. He when he walked through that curtain, and I watched him. I went, oh my. God, yep. he's home yep. in a television studio. He's home. You know, he was a weatherman in, in Indianapolis. Yeah. You yep. know that. Yep. I mean, that, that that that's where he belonged. And you know, he once told me when he was a little boy, he would watch Ernie Kovacs on TV. This guy had a talk show. Yeah, Steve Allen and Ernie Kovacs. Yep. And Dave had an erector set. He was a little boy, and he made a microphone <laughs> like what was on the TV. And he was watching that show, and 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 I told him that you know that that your your subconscious mind. You projected that, and that's where you ended up at. You know, it's amazing. Um, let me ask one thing: what did what was him and Carson were still the two best hosts? Is it because why are they so good? Are they just great listeners? Are they super witty, quick, or is it that they're they give it over to the guests and they just they let them shine for a minute? I mean, I don't. What is their what is their secret to being such a great talk show host? Lenny, you just described it perfectly. Here's the way I say it all the time. First of all, Midwestern, it's no secret that a lot of people from the Midwest were great late night, uh, great talk show hosts. I mean, from Jack Parr to yep. Dick Cavett to uh, Phil Donahue to um, Johnny Carson to um, uh, Mike Douglas to, you know, even Merv Griffin had that Midwestern choir. You know, that, that what Johnny Carson would do when Johnny Carson walked through that curtain, he was the star, yep. and he did that monologue, and he was the star, Johnny Carson. And then he went over and talked to Ed, and they did a little bit, and he was the star. And then they went to commercial break, and you were the star. I don't care if you're an old lady with a chicken. I don't care if you're a brand-new comedian. Johnny sat back and let you shine. And, and the other thing is, if you were going, say your story wasn't going anywhere, Johnny knew a way to um, to get you out of it, to, right. to save you. In the, so he, you were the guest in his home in the Midwest, and that's the way it, it looked, you know, that was a secret. Now, I used to joke Dave, and I said, Dave, you know, if you're, if you're talking to Johnny and it's not getting a laugh, Johnny will throw you a life jacket if mm -hmm. you're drowning. I said, Dave, if I'm drowning with you, you throw me an anchor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was away. Yeah, he was, even if 
Letterman was sarcastic to the guests, it would still somehow make it right. You know what I mean? He could still, you know, make it shine. It was amazing how he could pull something out of the dumps. It was incredible. Uh, he, he's, he's, an, he's an anomaly. He really yeah. is. He's, he's one of my dearest friends in the whole world. And I mean this with all my heart. I know that if I hung up from you and I called him and said, Dave, I need you, he'd be there. Mm-hmm. I, and he knows that of me. Oh. And it's just the relationship that we had um, through the years. I was there. There were a couple times in his life that, he needed somebody. He needed a pal. You know, everybody needs one person in your life, yep. one guy, one girl, whatever, whatever that you could. Your I call it the go-to guy. That the whole world's coming down on you, and you maybe did the dumbest, stupid, and most embarrassing thing that you could share with that person, and know that it's not going any further than there. And 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 uh, and, and and everybody needs someone like that. Well, that's David's my, that my guy is Neil right here. And it, yeah, my guy is Lenny. And then <laughs> most of the time I'm fucked. If I got to call Neil, I know it's going to be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's yeah, move well, on. You go. Let's go on to the last segment. We got we'll, with Tom Dreesen. He's got a new book out. Please go buy this book. Still standing, my journey from streets and saloons to stage and Sinatra. It's out this week. Um, I cannot read the. You can get it on Amazon. Amazon yeah. everywhere. I think Barnes anywhere books are sold. Barnes and Noble. Um, the last thing I want to do, and Neil and I are going to just pepper you with people here. Um, this is Hollywood and celebrities. You dropped about a billion names on us, from Jack Lemmon to Clint Eastwood. Um, let, we got to start with the Rat Pack. Um, what was it like when you were hanging around the Rat Pack? And by the way. Why was it Joey Bishop? Why not Tom Dreesen at that point? He was just, you were just the young guy? Oh, yeah, I was, that was before my time when Joey was there, of course. Oh, okay. But let me, let me say this about Hollywood celebrities, and I'll get to the Rat Pack. Yep. I don't particularly like Hollywood celebrities. I don't hang with them. I don't go with them. So most of them are prima donnas. Yep. Uh, uh, you know, they, they're, they're just a, a bunch of spoiled brats <laughs> who uh, had a sitcom, and all of a sudden they can tell you uh, how foreign affairs should be in Indochina. <laughs> you know? You're absolutely right. At that, you know what? Yeah, I couldn't, I'm so glad you said that because I tell people that all the time. They're like, what about this person? Have you met this person? I'm like, I got to tell you, it, they're just... It's amazing, but every once in a while you'll see you meet a Tom Dreesen, you'll meet a, and I got to say this a uh, real quick about the Chicago guys. You you somehow you knew Dennis Farina and maybe Joe Montana, all those Chicago dudes, great dudes. Great yeah. dudes. And, uh, and let me digress real quick there. Yeah. A while back, a guy called me and said, I want you to do a PSA, a public service announcement for policemen who are killed in the line of duty, that their widows and their children, the widows would get some kind of money and the children get colleges. And he said, Tom, could you help me and get a PSA? It's going to be in Chicago, you know, public service announcement. I said, I was getting a haircut. I said, I'll call you back in an hour. In one hour, and this is the God's honest truth, in one hour, I got Dennis Franz, Dennis Farina, yeah. Gary Sinise, William Peterson, Joe Montaigne, and me. Every one of those guys I called, not one said, call my agent, call my man. They said, I'm in, I'm in. Can I tell you how much I love that? You don't have to call their agent. You have to, like, the spoiled brats that I have to deal with, and they think they're the greatest thing of all time. It's so annoying. Uh, What was the Rat Pack like? Were they cool well, dudes? That, that was my point about being when I when I when I went to Frank's house yeah. and or when I toured with Sammy, these were sound established, huge stars. You know, and when Frank would invite me to the house the first time I went there, and there's Gregory Peck and Kirk Douglas and, and Robert <laughs> Wagner and Joe St. John and Clint Eastwood and, and, and they they were more interested. So you're a stand up comedian. Tell me about how did you get started in comedy and these <laughs> they, they they took it to you. They were so established they didn't need to 
give you their credits right. or tell you what they think about uh, uh, the foreign affairs. You know, they, they were so established and so real that that I was I was just so blessed to be in their company and and um, you know, and became Clint Eastwood still one of my dearest friends in the whole world. Um, you know, Frank you're introduces. In, uh, you were in his movie, right? Years. Yeah, well, I, I did the movie Trouble with the Curve oh, yeah. with them, and and I was nominated for best supporting, 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 <laughs> supporting, supporting, supporting actor. That's funny. And how cool? Now, I, 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 go ahead, go ahead, Neil. Ask him some questions. So, um, what about? Just, uh, oh, okay. Go ahead. No, Neil, go ahead. I said, what about like when you're at like in New York when you're down to sell or you know like a sign sell shows up and stuff? Was Carson showing up at the clubs at all then to to do stand up or never really? Oh no, he he when he would come once in a while to the comedy store or to the improvisation and uh, and and watch us, you know, and 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 uh, but he didn't say often because he was a terrible drinker. If he had a couple of drinks, there was no telling what he'd do. Yeah, and I'm not <laughs> going to tell you this story, but it's in my book. Okay, and, and you listen. <laughs> All right, it's a story. Frank Sinatra saved. Johnny Carson from a mob hit, and I'm not going to tell right. you the story because it's in the book. Combine the book okay. just and, for that. That's amazing. I'm, I'm telling you, and, and it's a story that Julie Rizzo told me verbatim, and then three weeks later on, on the private jet, Frank told me the exact same story verbatim, and it'll make your hair stand on end. <laughs> it, wow. it happened in New York, and, 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 and Henry Bushkin, in his book, tried to take a little credit for it, but I don't believe that at all. I believe it was Frank. There's no no one else could have gotten him out of that mob hit from but but Frank Sinatra, and it, and, and, and it was a dumb thing Johnny did, but he was new. He was a new host in New York at that time and, oh, wow. uh, of, of the Tonight Show, but it, it I tell you, it's worth the book just to read because it, it'll make your hair stand on end. How, uh, what Frank did. Did you love wow. those guys? Did you love who was your favorite out of the rap pack? Well, I mean, obviously, Sammy taught me so much about the business. I loved them all yeah. so much. But Sammy, I toured with Sammy three years and sit in the wings and watch him. He, there's nothing he couldn't do right. on stage. Sing, dance, and tell he, jokes, everything, right? Yeah, yeah, and by the way, there's a great story in the book about Sammy and Frank were separated for four years. They they didn't talk to one another because Frank was mad at Sammy for doing blow. And um, so the <laughs> night they got united, I was opening for Sammy at Caesars. Frank was closing the night before. Sammy uh, said, come on in early. And he, he Barbara Sinatra and Altavis got them to dinner, and, and they they got back together again. And Sammy had too much to drink, came back and got on stage with Frank. And then afterward, an incident happened. Frank was gone, but an incident happened that, that too long to explain. That it'll another one of those make your hair stand on. And in the kitchen on our way to the Sammy suite, an incident happened, and, and you got to read that. So okay. again, oh, I love wow. Sammy. He, he he and then you'll see what kind of a human being Sammy is. Did Aside from wow. being a great entertainer, yeah. Dean, I played golf with Dean, and I loved Dean, and I did the Dean Martin roast, and, and we did some corporate day together. He just was. Dean wouldn't say anything all day long, and then <laughs> he would knock you out with one line. One line at the end of the day would force. <laughs> and, and and if we can, can I can I swear on the show? Sure. Yes. Okay. A quick story. Yeah. Frank said. Dean cracked him up all the time. Frank had wonderful Dean stories. Frank's, one night, one afternoon, Frank and I were working in Detroit at the Fox Theater, and we did a matinee. 
and then we had to do an evening show. So we were sitting in a suite watching football. And Frank was using the teleprompters in those days because uh, he was forgetting lyrics and songs. But he started doing the teleprompters and he started bringing in all kinds of new songs and he loved it. You know, to, Sometimes he didn't even look at the teleprompter, but just knowing it's there right. made him relax. So he's trying to get Dean to do that and Dean wouldn't do it. He kept saying, come on, you know, they, they, he called him Dig. They called each other Dig. Okay. You know, show your Dago. I was doing a show the other day and a guy said, they couldn't do that today. I said, what? He said, call each other Dig. You know, they couldn't do that today because of political, correct? Yeah. I said, I'd love to be in a room. I would be like to be on, a, on, on the roof of a 17-story building. And you tell Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, you can't call each other Dig. You're going to go flying off that roof. <laughs> but anyhow, fr yeah. Frank couldn't get Dean to get the teleprompters. So finally, we're sitting in the suite watching this, and, and uh, um, Frank's lawyer, Elliot Wiseman, came in and he said, uh, Mort Viner, Dean Martin's manager, just called and said, Dean used the teleprompters last night in Vegas, and he loved them. He came off stage and said, book me on a world tour. These things are wonderful. <laughs> well, Frank said, I'll be, I've been trying to get him, to, get him on the phone, get him on the phone. And he says, he says, damn it, Deg, he gets on the phone. He said, damn it, Deg. He said, I've been telling you for years about the teleprompters. We're not kids anymore. He said, them rock stars, they got them little buttons in their ear for lyrics. I mean, damn it. He's, and Dean didn't want to hear it. Dean goes, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, where are you guys at? Frank said, hold on one second. He said, Tommy, where are we at? I said, we're in Detroit. Frank said, we're in Detroit. Dean said, did you have to look in the fucking teleprompter to see where you're at? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, he was a tough guy. He, wait, wait, Neil. He was a tough guy, right? Dean Martin was a tough guy. Frank respected him, Dean, right? Dean was the tough guy. Yeah. Those other guys, I mean, Sammy wasn't tough. Frank was a, a, an ambusher. Frank was a scrapper. Yep. But, I mean, he... He might argue with you and throw a quick punch if you weren't looking, you know. But and then Julia would jump in, you know. But but uh, Frank was, Frank was a scrapper. I mean, he, he was a feisty little guy. Were they? But, was everybody gambling all the time in Vegas too? Back in were they? Neil the loves Vegas. Too? Just so you know, Neil loves Vegas. Uh, Love Frank, Vegas. And he wants to know what was the vibe. That's what he's saying. You guys gambling, well, drinking, having a good time after shows, all getting together. Is that how it was? Yeah, well, we we would go to, in those days. You'd go to the lounge acts, Louis Prima, Keely Smith, the Trinaires. <clears throat> I mean, it was great going. You know, after your shows, you'd go watch the lounge, lounge acts and stay up till dawn. And then they would say sometimes, "Hey, Tommy Treasons and Tommy, get up, come here, and tell us about that growing up in Chicago." And you'd get up and do five or six minutes in the lounge, <laughs> or Sammy'd get and sing a song, or you know oh, that kind of stuff. But so it was so much fun. But yeah, and they gambled. You know, they gambled a lot. Yeah, was there but, any uh, with, with with Frank? Um, uh, he, again, he stayed up till dawn right. and wanted you to stay with him. One of the hardest times I made him laugh in Vegas, I, I, we had been on the road doing a bunch of one-nighters, and now we pull into Vegas, and we did two shows at the Desert Inn, and now it's 4.30 in the morning, and he's <laughs> in the second gear, and I'm tired. I get up to the table, about six guys, I'm going to go to bed. He said, hey, where are you going? I said, I'm going to bed. He said, why? I said, I got to get up early in the morning, go to the cemetery and visit those guys. He said, what guys? I said, all those guys who died trying to stay with you every night. And, and oh, he man. loved it. He, he made me tell that story all the time. Oh, man. Is there any... But, any... Uh, uh, Neil, here's the other thing, too. Sure. If you like Vegas. Love it. When Frank Sinatra was there, the drop in the pit was enormous. In the old days with the wise guys, not when corporate America was in there, all they cared about was the drop. What was the drop? Meaning, how much did people gamble? Right. 
You know, how much yeah. was, how much, so that was a term for your listeners who don't know. They, yeah. they, they, whenever you see the bosses in the morning, say, hey, hey, Tony, how you doing, Louis? What's the drop last night? You know, how much money was gambled that night? And wow. Frank Sinatra was there, it quadrupled. Wow. No entertainer alive. You could give me 10 uh, Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck, all great artists, by the way, e even Dean, you know, uh, and Sammy. But when Frank was there, the drop in the pit, not only was enormous in the hotel, but it was enormous in the hotels around it, you know, because Frank's hotel would sell out. And all the high rollers, I'm talking about high rollers from all over the United States, but high rollers from China, from Germany, from <laughs> France, you know, the guys who had million dollar credit lines, they wanted to be in the house where Frank was singing. Yeah. You know, and, and, yeah. and one night, Danny Schwartz lost $5 million at the Golden Nugget downtown. One Sinatra fan. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, one, one night, one Sinatra fan. Wow. You know, you can imagine what, what the drop was wow. when he was yeah. there. I did, I did Vegas last year. They were like, when's this guy leaving? I, I'm not a draw. <laughs> I don't drink and I don't gamble. They were like, get out. Well, when yeah. you go to Vegas now, is there anything left there that like is like has still some of that? I, we always search it yeah, out. Yeah, it's That's gone. Everybody's looking for old here. Vegas, but it's not there anymore, right, Tom? No, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah. And then what they did, see, they designed the hotels. You know, after, when I worked Vegas in the old days, I still work there now, but it's not the same. But yeah. in the old days, when the show was over, there'd be a huge cab line. People were rushing to another show. You know, and, yeah. and, and the entertainers would say, hey, if you, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Go see my friend Dean down the street or catch Sammy or, or you know, or, or, or Engelbert or whoever. You know, they encourage you to go to the other shows because if you were in town five days, you might go to six or eight shows. But you would rush to the outside to get in the cab line to go to the next hotel. Well, today they build a hotel so you can't leave them. Yeah. And then if you do, they have a, 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 a walkway to their sister hotel. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. True. So, I mean, you think about Caesar's Palace. You got a shopping center like you're in ancient Rome. Oh my God! You could stay two days in there. I walked through I Caesar's know. Palace for a day. I'm like, I'm done. That was the end. And from one end to the other, it was like a, a two hour walk. But how about at night? Then? Say, say you, once you log in and you want to, let's get Chinese food tonight. You can get it in a hotel. How about having Japanese food? You can get it in a hotel. Yeah. Let's have a steak tonight. You can get it in a hotel. How about Italian food? You can get it in a hotel. <laughs> you, they have all those restaurants in the same hotel. Yeah, yeah. They, they build them so you won't leave. You I know. know. Yeah. Neil's trying to get to the glory days. We all want to go. I know even Johnny Russo, your friend, He, we all want to go back just for just one day and see what you guys were living through. That era it must have been so fun. You know, like just the whole scene. That would have been great. Is there anybody you met, any celebrity that you were ever blown away when they walked in the room? You're like, oh, my God. Well, I mean, you, you can't. I was with the one. You were right. So is anybody yeah. else that you like? Ann Margaret. Well, you know, was she a big deal to you? You know, when Frank Sinatra walked into, like, if there was a room of five hundred people, yeah, and Frank came in the room and stood in one spot, they would all gravitate to him. Sooner or later, they would go. He wouldn't have to go around the room shaking hands. The presidents of the United States. They would gravitate to him. <laughs> I've seen people, senators, U.S. senators, who speak before the Congress of the United States, yeah. get in front of Frank and get tongue-tied. Right. You know, uh, oh, oh, Mr. Sinatra, I, I, you know, when I was going to college, I, you know, strangers in, and, I, 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 and Frank would say, calm down, calm down. <laughs> Start all over again, yeah. People would, he, he was really, I mean, this guy was universal. He, he sold out in Japan. He, and when he was 78 years old, yeah. He sold out in, 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 in Germany. He sold out in Italy. He sold out in, um, in Ireland. He sold out in Moscow. I mean, a guy, I mean, it, 
<clears throat> this is nobody had a career like him. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And you were there. And then the other mystique about him, you know, always the other mystique about him was he connected? You know, uh, uh, did all that stuff about him. You know, powerful people gravitate to other powerful people. Mm -hmm. Heads of state, they like to meet other heads of state, heads of mafias, heads of corporations. <laughs> you know, um, well, and and Frank entertained them all. You were with the guy. I'll Let me ask you one last question. You, you're a big golf guy, and I saw on, I think, your website, you got, you, you, you've done a couple things with Tiger Woods. Neil's a big Tiger guy. Neil's father's a huge Tiger guy. I mean, what was it like meeting Tiger Woods? Um, I mean, if I had to hit a golf ball in front of Tiger Woods, I, there's no way that thing would go more than 10 feet. I'd be a mess. <laughs> well, well, I caddied as a boy. So, I mean, I grew up, you know, as a little boy, you know, caddying. And so I grew up around the environment. And then years go by and I was playing in the, the Bob Hope put me in the Bob Hope Classic. And, yeah. and, uh, and then I was emceeing that for years when Bob couldn't do it. And then Frank Sinatra's golf tournament. And then I played on a tour called the Celebrity Players Tour. Oh, it's wow. basketball, baseball, football, hockey, oh, wow. and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. Wow. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, Jan El John Elway, <laughs> uh, Michael Jordan, Dan Marino. We had 42 Hall of Famers. In show business, it was me, Matt Lauer, Brian Gumbel, Smokey Robinson, Frankie Avalon, Eddie Marinero, people like that. Jack Wagner, who was a great, the best celebrity golfer I ever yeah. met. Yeah. Uh, show business, you know, um, um, Rick Roden won over $2 million on that tour. <laughs> That's we were, right. He was a great yeah, 12 cities. Yeah. yeah, it was on TV all the time, Pebble Beach and, and Tahoe, right? Those were, those well, were Tahoe was, was the first one, and then we started doing 12 cities around the year. I was one of the founders of the tour and on the board for years. And oh, wow. it, was, it was, for me, it, look, I'm a little boy from Harvey, Illinois. I'm shining shoes, hearing Sinatra on the jukebox, and then one day I'm flying all over the country with Frank Sinatra. And then as a little boy, I was always a sports fan, played a lot of sports. If you'd have told me one day when you grow up, you're going to fly around the world and appear with Frank Sinatra and be a friend of Frank Sinatra, and also you're going to get into an arena and you're going to compete with the greatest athletes who ever lived in your lifetime, I'd have said, that's impossible. But that's what I was doing. That's you know, that's you, do you know how many sitcoms I turned down, how many shows I could have done and, and and because whenever they came to me i was competing with all these athletes and touring with frank you know all i thought about was christopher morley the author once said success is living the life you want yeah you know, yeah and 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 i i wouldn't have given that up for the world you oh, know man. that is you know, a, i love that too. that's a great way to end that segment and Thank you so much for doing this. The way we end the show every week, Tom, if you want to stick in on this one, is we do one good thing or one bad thing of the week that's happened to you. You could say one or the other, both. Um, mine this week, believe it or not, and this is totally out of left field, but I actually fixed an appliance in my house. <laughs> Never, most Jewish guys can't fix anything, but no, I, I found the part. I ordered it. The sink sprayer didn't work. I, I, it came, and I fixed the sink, Neil. How do you like that? Wow, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Neil, do you have one good thing or one bad thing of the week? My good thing is I definitely feel like uh, we can go outside again. I went outside more than once, <laughs> and I feel, I feel like I went to a, a, a store, and then I went to another store. I Two stores back to back. Yeah, Tom, did so you ever think that we were going to be just stuck inside in our lives like this? You, you can't imagine this, right? 
No, I can't. And, and, I, and I do think that a lot of it is overblown. And I do think, I mean, it, they send so many mixed messages to us. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the coronavirus and, and, and the state of social distancing. And then we watch 50,000 rioters burn every, you know, all the up and down Michigan Avenue. And, yeah. and uh, you know, peop, you know a, a guy who owned a store said he wanted to go protect his store, but he also wanted to follow the mayor's law of the social distancing, so he didn't want to come six feet from the people who were ripping his store apart. <laughs> but, but I, I mean, it's such mixed messaging. You know, we're we're confused. Yeah. We won't know for three or five years from now. We won't know. Um, I'll tell you a, a good thing I did. I'm at the store yeah. and I I got the mask on and I'm getting some stuff because I'm not. I, I never cook. I'm the worst Italian in the world. I hate to cook, but <laughs> now I'm making salads. I'm making shrimps. I never did this kind of crap yeah, before me too. because yeah. I'm like that. So so I go to the store and I'm buying this stuff and I'm. And, and I go to get in line, but I didn't realize that I cut in front of a guy. And the guy said, "Hey, hey, I'm in." Line. I said, "Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry." And 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 the guy, you know, so I backed up, you know, and 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 you know, anyhow. Long story short, a guy cuts in front of me, and the guy who gave me a dirty look that I cut in front of him, the guy cuts in front of me. He only had a couple items. He didn't realize the line was there. He came from around the counter. And I said, hey, buddy, this line here. And he goes, oh, oh. And I said, you know what? You only got a couple items. Go ahead. He said, really, you don't mind? I said, no, I don't mind. And he smiled through the mask. You see, he smiled at me. And now a woman jumps in front of him, and he started to yell at her, but he remembered what I did. And he said, ah, go, go ahead. She said, oh, I'm sorry. He said, no, that's right. Go ahead. And I thought to myself, we're all now three people smiling. Aww. You know, I could have, you know, if I'd have got angry and crossed, get in the back of the line. Now we have three people angry. You know? Right. Yeah. So, so I, I, that's what I'm, I'm you know, yeah. pay it forward, pay that smile forward. So my point is, when you're walking around, even with the mask on, say hello to people, good morning, how you doing? Yeah. Hope you're fine, you know, that's kind of stuff, you know. You yeah. do some great work, you're a motivational speaker, speaker and um, you also have a great research foundation, Day for Darlene, I read about that, so if people want to give to that, they can find that online as well? Well, my, my charity now is uh, um, Illinois Fatherhood Initiative. Oh, okay. The problem we have that there are no fathers in the home. Seven, uh, three out of every ten white children in America have no father in the home. Uh, I think it's four point five every Hispanic no father in the home, and seven out of ten every African American have no father in the home. And that's the breakdown of America. And that's my charity. If we're we will never be conquered from without. We're too powerful, but we will be conquered from within. And it's the breakdown of the family. Everything you saw in those streets this week breakdown of the family yeah you know fathers in the home are really 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 important yeah, great yeah and well tom this has been i don't know neil this is my favorite show ever that we've ever done yeah we've done this 150 is, this of these is, and it's it's this has been amazing amazing your website is tomdreesen.com i don't see you have any social media are you on any do you you're, do you I'm, I'm on instagram and i'm on oh. twitter but you know facebook i'm on facebook i i'm i'm, I'm i don't I'm not very good with the social media, so my daughters were going to help me with it, and then they went on to their own lives. Yep. <laughs> so I'm, I'm on Twitter. It's Tom Dreesen Comic on Twitter and on Instagram, Tom Dreesen Comic. That's but fantastic. I, the, the book can be bought on Amazon. And, uh, the book and is on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, Still Standing, My Journey from the Streets and Saloons to Stage and Sinatra. Tom, I cannot wait to see you perform when you're 95. I will come to that show and I will sit in the front row if I have to. I mean, it, we'll be there. you're fantastic. You're a great guy. Thank you so much for doing this. We wish you all the best with the book. And if you're ever in New York, please come find us. You know, LennyMarcus.com. You can find I'll come get you wherever I have to in New York. We'll have dinner with you. We'll Jenny take you to Patsy's on 57th yeah, Street. Yeah, we'll take you to Patsy's. It'll be fantastic. 
I love it. Yeah, Sal, Sal's a good guy. He'll take good care of us. Yeah. All right. Okay, thank you, <laughs> thank guys. You. Thank Tell you guys Dave so much. I love him. All right. All right. Bye, I everybody. I wish you the best. Okay, bye, bye. time. Thank you. Bye-bye.